Welcome citizens, you're listening to New Amsterdam Radio, the podcast for creatives. Here, thinkers and doers always have a key to the city. The mayor is in, so office hours start now. New Amsterdam Radio starts now. Global Voice here, the mayor in the mayor's office. And for this bonus episode, we're doing something a little different. Had a chance to sit down with the author of uh, Taming the Dragon, Dr. Shauna Clark, about her book and what it means to be an advocate for mental health. This was kind of like a virtual book signing. And so if you don't know what this is, this is where people who have purchased the book or are looking to the copy of the book send the author questions. We do a virtual Q&A. And after that, those who ask the questions get themselves a copy of the book. It's a pretty cool, innovative idea. It definitely came from the pandemic. But I like the fact that audience members or fans of authors have a brand new way to interact with uh, authors and talent. So it was a an honor to be chosen to moderate this one. This one's a little bit different on that reason for that reason rather, but it's still uh, pretty cool nonetheless. NewAmsterdam.com. Tell a friend about the show, and I'll see you on the other side. And we're going to have ourselves a little bit of a virtual book signing. But before we get to that, I just want to say, uh, last April, our friends at the West Point Print and Media attended the biggest book festival since the pandemic, the LA Times Book Festival at UCLA. It was an awesome event attended by thousands of book enthusiasts. And one of the books displayed at the event was Taming the Dragon, Managing Mental Illness, Doctor written by Dr. Shauna Clark. It's gained a lot of attention and curiosity amongst readers and wanted the author to ask questions. Since she's from New York and was not able to attend the event, we are going to reach out to her and ask her all those questions that our curious readers would like to know from that event and our friends from the west point print media were kind enough to give each of those readers who sent their questions a copy of the book signed by author so let's before we even get into that let's talk about this before we went live we're going into your story and how you got to this point i was in my third year of columbia medical school and uh after four months of sleeping very poorly um i woke up and my thoughts were running so fast i was practically incoherent so i had my first psychiatric hospitalization later that day uh i should mention that in those days doctors were not very attuned to bipolar disorder so i was misdiagnosed as schizophrenic which meant that they gave me tons of antipsychotics which are used in bipolar disorder, but there's not the main thing. And I was fainting, you know, falling to the floor in a dead faint all the time. So, um, well, uh, 25 days later, I got out. Columbia insisted that I take a year's leave of absence, saying they would keep my place open for me. But when the year was up, they decided that since I'd been out of school for a year, I was no longer competitive and refused to readmit me. Mm -hmm. uh, I found out that almost at the top of the list of percentage of foreigners and returning Americans who pass the exam that everybody must pass to be allowed to practice in the United States um, was the Belgians were at the top of the list. So I went to Belgium 
And uh, it took me seven years because I had several readmissions to psychiatry as I was finishing medical school. But the man who was chief of psychiatry there was a world famous man who had a great reputation for getting people not only into a life after a hospitalization, but into the life they wanted. And I was very struck when I first met him because I asked him if I could ever get back into medical school. And he said, I don't know, Mademoiselle, the first thing we have to do is get you well. And I had been for several years in treatment in New York and no psychiatrist had ever said, get you well. They said only diminish your symptoms somewhat. That was the best I could hope for. So um, I couldn't stay beyond 48 hours because the Belgians have enough doctors. They don't want foreigners coming into the country and mm -hmm. setting up shop. Uh, and so I had to get out, but I left my doctor a domijana, which is a word for two bottles of champagne in the same, you know, in the same large bottle. And mm -hmm. it was excellent first class vintage French champagne. And the note that I attached said, um, I can't stay to drink this with you. Drink it with whom you will. But think of me and accept my heartfelt thanks. So okay. I returned to the States. I'd already passed the exam uh, a, a few years earlier because the Belgians can afford themselves the luxury of taking it before they've even finished all their clinical training because they don't think of it as a very difficult exam. Sure. Uh, so... Uh, I then, I'll skip over some details and say I managed to get into a, uh, I was hired by, I went to um, New Orleans to get a doctorate in public health, which I did finish because that was reputed not to have the call schedule that anything clinical does. Um, and uh, I worked for the state of Louisiana's uh, uh, psychiatric system. Most, I think 98% of the psychiatry in Louisiana is public sector. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the private sector is minuscule. Um, and my boss read everything I wrote and said, you know, I think you're gifted because when you, I was in the uh, children's unit, and he said, when you describe a child and the parent, he said, I can practically see them sitting in front of me. So I think you should go into psychiatry. Well, whatever he said, I had fallen in love with the work. So I enthusiastically applied to psychiatry residencies and did a psychiatry residency at Hahnemann mm -hmm. uh, in Philadelphia. And uh, when I graduated, unfortunately, there was a lady who had been diagnosed bipolar many years ago, refused the diagnosis, and she had a manic crisis at 3 a.m. And for some reason, my residency 
thought the same was about to happen to me, even though the chief resident said, if you have two people with the same diagnosis, one of whom refuses the diagnosis and refuses to take any treatment, and the other follows all doctors' recommendations to the letter, do you really expect them to have the same outcome? Nevertheless, in order to ensure that I would have extra supervision, I was put on probation for a while. I was off it fairly quickly. But when I graduated, that was in my record. So I took contracts for temporary assignments, two months here, three months there, four months somewhere else, all over the eastern half of the United States. Um, uh, I was not accepted by uh, to get a license in New York State. They didn't answer me. They said they didn't want to say no because that goes on your record, but they couldn't say yes because they had never given somebody with an active psychiatric diagnosis as opposed to say 20 years ago, his first wife died and he got a little upset. You remember, you may remember what happened to Senator Eagleton who was a vice presidential candidate. Um, uh, and he was uh, denied the candidacy for vice presidency because people thought he was crazy because he'd had a few weeks of counseling after his wife died. Mm -hmm. Well, but they had never uh, licensed anybody with an active disease. So uh, I went to other states which were, uh, let's say, well into the 20th century, which considered doctors licensable and um, uh, worked there, and every time I finished an assignment, I would ask my boss to send New York a letter. So when I had finished the psychiatry residency, I called New York State, and the same person who said, we don't dare give you a license, said, oh, we got all those lovely letters. We'd love to give you a license. Just tell me where to send it. Mm -hmm. Um and I got six other licenses since. Uh, I also worked for six different VAs around the Eastern half of the United States. And uh, I will say I worked for 20 years without incident, without ever getting into trouble. And I will say that I, my impression of how to be successful as a psychiatrist beyond having the training about diseases and keeping up with the latest on what medications or what therapies we have to offer, uh, I would say that the first thing is to respect your patient. Uh, I'll give you an example of what I mean. Uh, I had a, a doctor in New York before I went to Belgium and our usual time to see each other was Wednesday afternoon. He said to me one Wednesday, I can't see you this afternoon, but I promise I'll stop by before I go home on Friday for the weekend. He did not bother to see me. And when I told him, when I mentioned this to him on Monday, he said, oh, I wasn't worried. I know you're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And the idea that he left me 
in some state of anxiety for the whole weekend was no concern of his. Now, the opposite of that, when I was working for the sex offender treatment program in Marcy, New York, I promised a patient to go and discuss his problems with him. But on that particular day, uh, I had three admissions, which is very usual, a very unusual for one doctor in one day. And there were also physical fighting on one of the floors that I had to go and arrange, you know, get people to stop fighting and so on. And uh, so I did not make it to go on that day to talk to this person. So before I went home for the evening, I went up to see him and I said, I do apologize. I explained what kind of a day I'd had. And I said, right after the doctor's early morning meeting, I will come looking for you tomorrow morning, which I did do. And, but he was amazed. He said, a doctor apologizing to me? I said, well, you know, you're a human being and I'm a human being. So it seems to me that if I promise somebody something, I ought to keep my word or at least explain what happened and apologize. I hope you can forgive me. Um, and, uh, um, now we're, uh, so, but I think the number one thing is respect everybody, even sure. if they are a repeat sex offender. From my point of view, that's not too difficult because my personal conviction, and I have never shared this with a patient, uh, I'm not into trying to convert people's religious beliefs or whatever. My personal conviction is that we are all children of God and that we are all equally precious to God and that we are placed here for a reason. So just because somebody has some terrible experiences and behaves very badly does not mean they're not a child of God. They are. So I didn't have difficulty treating them well. Uh, the other thing is, to, if you can get your patient to believe that you care about them, uh, they will suddenly start coming to their appointments on time, uh, taking their medication on time, uh, tr and trying, doing or trying to do the other things you might recommend. Uh, it is, an, and then you will see some transformations that if you hadn't seen it with your own eyes, you wouldn't believe in terms of getting better and getting more in possession of who they are and what their life is about and how to go forward. Um, sure. Uh, and I think there are a great many American psychiatrists who do not respect their patients. I just gave you an example and who do not really care about them because mm. I think many American providers have gotten very discouraged and they say, oh, it's hopeless. And, you know, there's nothing I can do because they don't understand that if the patient thinks you care, 
wonderful things stop, start happening. You may be the only person in that patient's life at that time who does care. They may be living on the street or they were just thrown out by their spouse or, you know, something terrible happened. They had a terrible, they were in a terrible car crash and they've lost a leg or an arm and they just, uh, the humiliation to be without your right arm can be devastating. Um, now, I should also mention that when I was in my 20s, and I'm referring to when I was in Belgium, I had five serious suicide attempts. Mm -hmm. uh, by serious, I mean hemorrhagic shock or coma from an overdose. I'm not the kind of person who is supposed to take two aspirin and I take three and call it an overdose. That's not me. Um, and after all that, when I did graduate from medical school, it occurred to me, you know, I, I said to myself, you have been asking the universe for a long time to send you somewhere else. But I think you have your answer because you keep getting these miraculous or near miraculous rescues from suicide. And, uh, you know, I think you ought to take an interest in what you can do while you're here. So um, at the time, I didn't think of becoming a psychiatrist because I'd never worked in it. And psychiatry in general does not have a terrific reputation in this country. But when I worked in the Louisiana system, I realized I just love the work because from my point of view, you have an illness, you have a problem. Well, you may learn to look at that in a certain way or get around it or whatever. But if you feel terrible, you feel depressed all the time, you feel suicidal, that's something that someone else is going to have to help you with. And by the way, in 20 years, I never had any patient of mine engage in self-harm, which generally means cutting like on the back of your arm, which makes a cut, but it's not going to kill you, uh, attempt suicide or complete suicide. Because anytime I heard a patient, and I always asked, say that they had suicidal ideation, I'd say, please don't hurt yourself. There are people who would miss you most dreadfully if you died. And that and the fact that I managed to convey that I cared about my patients was enough to keep people away from suicidality. And I should say that it is now 50 years since I was first fell ill, although I did say that I wasn't properly diagnosed for almost four years, which was standard according to a Harvard study in those days, because doctors just were not attuned to bipolar disorder. But um, so uh, I, I, Um, I just wanted, I think everyone, even if they do not have great intelligence, they have some gifts. 
because the Lord does not make junk, as has been said. Um, and the point is to find out what your gifts are and then use them for the benefit of as many people as you can while you live your life. Sure. Um, and uh, I should say that for the past 20 plus of those 50 years, I have had no symptoms whatsoever. That's great. Uh, and that is very unusual because just the other day I turned 72. And generally speaking, when bipolar disordered people get older, the mania dies down, the speed it up and, you know, grandiose and all that dies down. But the depression gets worse and worse. And it is estimated that of bipolar people over 50, two-thirds spend most of their time feeling depressed. I faced the idea that I am mortal and my life is not, will not go on forever when I had cancer, bone cancer, which killed in those days all but one out of 200 patients uh, in short order. Um, and I've never forgotten what I learned. And so I say to myself, well, I had 20 years as a psychiatrist and now uh, I've just completed my first, my third book, which will be entitled uh, Life is an Adventure. Um, uh, Taming the Dragon was my second book. And the point of Taming the Dragon is to educate someone who has just fallen into mental illness as to what they should know because the world of psychiatry is somewhat different from the rest of the world. I'll give you a simple example. Uh, when I was in medical school, a mother brought her 16-year-old son to the psych ward to be hospitalized. And she said to the nurse in charge, uh, he had done something obnoxious, but not really harmful or dangerous. And I've forgotten what it was, some teenager is something. And she said, if he does that one more time, I swear I'll kill him. Well, she had to spend the whole day until 6 p.m. because the doctor on call had a patient with a heart attack and a third one with serious intestinal bleeding and it took him all day to be free to come and examine her because technically speaking she had just made a homicidal threat on her son mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. where do people send somebody who's making homicidal threats well one of the places that they go is a state psychiatric hospital right. um, and uh, but she was surprised and somewhat angered by having to wait all afternoon because she has said this because she said it without meaning it the way many of us do they say oh for heaven's sakes don't do that or I'll kill you you know um, and in psychiatry, whatever you say is taken at face value. Correct. 
So. So, Taming the Dragon, Managing Mental Illness is your second book, and we do have a lot of questions piling in about that book. If you, if you were, we'll have to answer those questions sure. for me. Great. Uh, we uh, had some people from all over the country willing to, to pile in. This one's from Dana Wright from LA. Uh, she says, how do you recover from your mental illness? Well, uh, when I decided that uh, maybe the universe had given me an answer and they weren't going to let me die right then and there, I started to, if I had a suicidal thought, I'd say, go away, get out of here. And uh, I remember uh, when I was still a teenager, uh, since I had been born with a lot of handicaps, um, I was frequently dropping things and spilling things and so on. And my mind would say to me, oh, there you go again, you slob. You just spilt, you know, a whole bowl of soup all over the floor. Uh, a year later, my mind said, uh, you better get go get the mop. And a year after that, it said nothing when something bad happened. And then when I one morning made it from my kitchen across my living room to the bedroom with a full cup of tea in my hand without spilling a drop, it said, wow, you made it all the way across your apartment without spilling a drop. Way to go, girl. In other words, <laughs> you get your, uh, that little voice on your side and yeah. you just don't pay attention to, and you say, I'm not interested in suicide anymore. Get out of here. Go. And I would get up. And at one point in my life, I would get up and bake a couple dozen cookies because the aroma of freshly baked cookies would cheer anybody up. True. <laughs> True. <laughs> uh, Mike Andreas from Mill Pithas, California says, Dr. Clark, I'm a father of two beautiful daughters. When I was a teenager, I remember my mom was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Is mental illness inherited? I'm just worried about it. I hope you'll have a speaking engagement in the future. Well, that's very nice of him. Uh, there may be an inherited genetic tendency in other words, put three people in the same stressful situation and two of them will maybe quit or, you know, do something and the third one will develop bipolar. But it's not inherited in the same way that, say, skin color is inherited. And there's a whole chapter, chapter two, in uh, um, Taming the Dragon, which is on that subject. Wanda Green from Traverse City, Michigan writes, how do you deal with a teenage daughter who was recently diagnosed with bipolar disorder? Well, I would say you don't change your um, usual uh, disciplinary or other. In other words, you don't just let her grow up doing whatever the heck she wants because you're afraid to speak to her. But you say, look, you have a disorder and you have to learn how to, uh, if you're getting manic and your thoughts are speeding up and you just can't see, and, and the way, you know, mania, uh, you can have lots of, I had the my wallet in my hand two minutes ago, but I've been 
uh, from Shreveport, Louisiana, in my mind, to Shanghai, to something else in the meat, and I can't remember where I put it. Go lie down in a darkened room for maybe five or ten minutes and just slow your mind down. Then as you get more used to doing that, you can slow your mind down without having to go anywhere. And as for the depression, um, Americans seem to feel that if they have a thought that is a depressing thought, it's there and they have to be its victim. You can tell any thoughts in your mind, it's your mind, you own your mind. You can tell any thoughts you think to go jump. You know, I mean, supposing I got a resentment or dislike of my neighbor uh, and it crept into my mind to harm him in some way, well, I don't do that, so get out of here. Go jump. Leave me alone. Deborah Wiener from LA says, how many years are you in practice? I hope to see you in a speaking engagement if there's any in the future. Your story is quite inspiring. Thank you for those comments. I was in practice for 20 years and I left when I was 66, which was over my full retirement age. Um, I left because the state hospital, which I was working at at the time, I was every weekend from Friday at four o'clock until Monday morning, I was the only doctor in the place. But there were many too many patients and also we had quite a few admissions. Um, and uh, there wasn't any way that I could see every single patient every weekend. So I depended on the nurses to tell me who has a problem Who's in difficulty? Who would you like me to see? And one weekend, uh, I heard from the nurse on the children's unit uh, that she, first of all, she asked me for a hold order. A hold order means do not give for these doses, but it doesn't discontinue the medication. It's used for for example, if somebody takes something else and they and there's an interaction between the two drugs and they get an allergy, well, you might take them, hold the uh, offending medication for a couple of days. But I said, what's the problem? And she said, our eight-year-old type 1 diabetic and type 1 diabetics are extremely fragile. Uh, they can get into ketoacidosis and die quickly. Um, she was, she said, uh, unable to give him his insulin, which was due at 10 o'clock in the morning. Now, as a nurse, she should have known that something that is written for 10 o'clock is perfectly legal to give between 9.30 and 10.30. But not to tell the doctor until 4 is a serious medic it's called a medication error mm -hmm. because and i said you realize his blood glucose might be 600 by now well it wasn't 600 she couldn't find a um device to measure blood glucose 
and finally, we, we did find one, and it wasn't 600, but it was 550, which, as you may know, normal glucose is between 60 and 100. And I was afraid, I went to see him, and I was afraid he would be near coma because of the high blood glucose. But I was lucky. Uh, God helped me out, and the boy was still okay. And the young nurse who had called me at four o'clock left shortly thereafter, and I had one of the few remaining older experienced nurses. And between the two of us, we got his blood glucose level back to normal by 2 a.m. But it occurred to me there were other things, too. There was a man who uh, the nurses apparently had been trying to reach his regular Monday to Friday doctor all week, and the doctor had refused to come see him. I have no idea why. And um, he got into such a high lithium level that even the lab wrote critical value. Um, but the nurses don't look at the lab slips. So I went to see this guy. He had lost the ability to speak. He had lost the ability to stand up. And the next thing for him would be coma and death. So I said to him, I've stopped your lithium. You will feel better as time goes on over the next few days because the lithium will go down. And, um, you know, don't be worried about what's happening to you. It's just a side effect and it will go down as you get below toxic levels. And I told the director of the institution about him who would follow up and make sure he got another lithium level and got the appropriate adjustment downward. I don't know why he wasn't on a very high dose. Um, so I don't know why, except one thing that occurs to me, I did not see in his chart a check of his kidney function. And if people have some uh, subnormal kidney function, although they're managing perfectly well from day to day, but it's just not quite up to snuff, uh, they may get into much too high lithium levels. And so I said to the director that his kidney function had not been checked before he should he would start the lithium, which should be the way it's done, and perhaps they should look into that. And so he was fine. And I, I, I don't want to brag, but I literally saved his life because if they'd gone on giving him the lithium, as I say, after you lose speech, you lose the ability to stand. The next thing is you go into a coma and the next thing is you die. Mm -hmm. But uh, I know that uh, the weekend on call person is legally responsible for anything that bad that happens in the hospital while they're on duty. And since I had, I've just given you two examples where I was not informed where, you know, bad care was given. I didn't want to be responsible in case somebody died. And I hadn't even known about it because I didn't know is not a legal defense. You should have known. So I quit. I gave my boss, whom I liked, uh, seven weeks notice and worked until the end of December 2016. 
And then I decided to turn my attention to writing books. And I know I can't go back into practice because it is considered unethical having written about some things, including some of your own experiences, to uh, go back into practice because the patient should not know much about the personal experience of the doctor because it is a distraction. It gets the patient's attention off their own problems. And for example, I don't have any children, but that doesn't mean I didn't help a lot of moms with a lot of things about their children, but you don't want the patient saying, well, you know, she doesn't have any children and I don't know if she can help me and fussing about that rather than focusing on the problems that they have. Rachel Torres from San Antonio, Texas writes, we went to the LA Times book show and I saw the video ad about your book. You have a very inspiring story. Do you have a YouTube channel? I don't have any personal questions for you, but I would love to get a copy of your book. So YouTube channel, you have one of those? Do I have a what? A YouTube channel, YouTube? Uh, well, the publisher has, and uh, I can go to his YouTube channel. Um, I also do have uh, a, you know, an email, although I would ask people, you know, to, to think about it a little before they send me an email because I'm a busy person and I can't answer 10 emails when they could have just shortened it and put me one question. And the email is doctor, D-O-C-T-O-R, Shana, S-H-A-N-A, Clark, C-L-A-R-K, and then the number one, because when I was making the email address, they insisted on having one number mm -hmm. in there. The number one at gmail.com. Um, and I should tell you, that one of my birth defects is uh, a seizure disorder, which is pretty well under control, but there are whole weeks where I may not be up to looking at a computer screen. So uh, if somebody sends me an email, they should not expect a response very quickly. Within a week or so, that's a possibility. Bill Obabwe, also from Los Angeles, says, how old were you when you were diagnosed? Um, I was uh, 26. As I say, I first fell ill at 22, and for almost four years, uh, people put me down as having schizophrenia. I should say something that I think is, is kind of funny. Um, I was hospitalized in late October, uh, 1972, a few days before the presidential election in November. And uh, I had spoken to the social worker when I was first admitted and asked her to look into getting an absentee ballot, which was not at all common in those days. 
And she told me two days later that the day, the date for it had passed and, you know, she had no solution. I called the volunteer department of the hospital and asked if there were anybody, because my doctor would give me a pass to go to my polling space, but I had to go with someone. He was not at all sure that I would be able to do it by myself because my brain damage from birth, my worst, my worst suit is location in space. And he was afraid I'd get lost if he let me out by myself. So I called the volunteer department and said, do they have somebody who could take me? And they said, no. So then I called the chairman of the board of the hospital and I said, you know, I have a lawyer who's very willing to sue you for um, depriving me of my civil right to vote if we get to the day after the election and I wasn't allowed to vote. Now, uh, I come from a Mayflower family, which used to be wealthy, we're not anymore, but, um, uh, and, you know, it would be embarrassing for you to say the least, to have a patient sue you for depriving them of their civil rights. And I said, so if you call the volunteer department and say they must find somebody to take me to my polling place, then I go vote and there's no problem. So they did find somebody. Ironically, she was a lady who had been in medical school as a young person herself, but quit because uh, there was apparently a lot of insinuations and foul language and sort of picking on her because she was female. And she told me that I could never make it through medical school, but I just said to myself, she's feeling very hurt and she doesn't want to see you succeed where she failed. So just let it go and thank her for taking you to the polling place. Uh, and so that's how I got to vote. The, the, the thing that required uh, a certain amount of, um, shall I say, uh, pep talks to myself mm -hmm. was to dare to call the chairman of the board of the hospital mm -hmm. as a psych patient. Yeah. Uh, Jennifer Lucas from Houston, Texas says, uh, I've saw some of your video content. I don't have any questions for you. Uh, and Leon Reed from Oakland, California says, I like your book. I like the cover concept. I saw your animated video ad and it really got me curious. Do you have any speaking engagements in California? Me and my wife would love to attend the event. More power to you. Well, that have been, you know, that's been several people who've made this comment and perhaps uh, if you, if you call Ray Walters and tell him that several people have said they would love to hear me speak, I'd love to go. Uh, as a matter of fact, part of the point from my point of view of writing these books, the first book was My Money's on the Turtle, which is a reference to the old Aesop's fable of a race between a tortoise and a hare. Mm -hmm. And the turtle being very 
ploddingly persistent and the hare being very distracted and not believing he could ever lose a race to a turtle, uh, the hare lost the race. And my point with that was, if you persist, don't give up. No matter who tells you that you'll never be free of your mental illness, that is a myth which is perpetrated by the profession as much as other people because they get discouraged and they just say, oh, it's hopeless, there's no point, and so on. And, uh, well, I am living testimony to the idea that it is possible. Now, I don't expect that my methods would fit everybody. There is no treatment for almost anything that fits everybody. But somebody could, first of all, get the idea, it is not impossible to be free of mental illness. Even if you had a serious case, and I would submit that with five serious suicide attempts, I had a serious case. Um, but, you know, you have to hang on and keep going. And what were called coping strategies, which were strategies for how not to become um, impossibly grandiose and speed it up and so on in mania or impossibly depressed. Uh, they were their little strategies to sort of get you on it. It's sort of like my baking cookies. Mm -hmm. I wake up in the morning and I'm feeling bad. Um, but I, instead of calling them coping strategies, which might suggest you're going to be coping with the problem forever and ever and ever, I called them conquering strategies. And uh, see, I started from the idea that I own my own mind and I own my thoughts. Somebody else says something. Well, it's up to me as to what importance do I give to that and how do I interpret it and so on. But my thoughts are mine. And so if my thoughts are again me, as they used to be, because I said, you know, I dropped something or spilled something and they'd say, oh, there you go again, you stupid slob. Um, I just tell them to, you know, um, get themselves in order and I, I won't tolerate it. Right. That's always good to hear. We got two more questions for you. First one's from Ryan Mendoza, also from Los Angeles. He says, I'm excited to get a copy of your book, Dr. Clark. I also saw your YouTube channel. Uh, we are planning to move back to New York and my wife is worried about running out of medications. Her doctor is from LA. How do you manage that? Well, uh, one of the uh, things that I have in uh, Taming the Dragon uh, as a way of saving money, actually, uh, instead of taking a 30-day supply, this works for medications which are not controlled substances. In other words, not narcotic painkillers, not medications like Valium, uh, because they're sub subject to uh, harm or death in overdose. And so the government tries to, to keep the number of pills that a person gets at any one time down. Um, but regular medications, 
you can ask for not a 30-day supply, but a 90-day supply. And the advantage part of, well, first of all, you can get your insurance to send it directly to your address. And secondly, uh, you only pay a copay every time you get a delivery. So instead of paying a copay every 30 days, you pay a copay every 90 days. So um, I would suggest he visit his doctor and say, can I have a 90 day prescription? Mm -hmm. And uh, make sure that the people at the pharmacy have a workable address for sending the medication to. Yeah. Last question is from Michael Portis, also from Los Angeles. He writes, how do you deal with your own mental illness while taking care of your patients? Well, I told you about how to deal with my own mental illness. Actually, taking care of my patients was such a joy that it would lift me out of depression and uh, the basis of mania, which is the speeded up grandiose and all that is usually anxiety. And I was not anxious even seeing a new patient because I knew how to do this and how to do it well. Mm -hmm. uh, my colleagues kept referring to me as gifted and I actually had, oh, uh, I was running a chronic ward. Uh, patients in a chronic ward are there for at least a year. And the, the longest staying there that I had was 40 years. But uh, they got together in September and started collecting nickels and dimes, which is what uh, patients in a state hospital chronic ward have. And by Christmas, they had enough money to buy me a small Christmas bouquet and the card attached said, thanks for caring the mm. patients on 2E. And that's why I say convincing, I had another incident of a lady, uh, we had a, a phlebotomist come on to the, who took blood, come on to the ward every morning if to see if anybody had a blood order and she needed to go away for about six weeks uh, to have foot surgery. When she left, I had just taken over this ward. Patients were punching each other, hitting each other, cursing each other. Somebody picked up a very heavy um, thing, uh, hamper for dirty laundry, which was made of steel and tried throw it at the social worker's head, fortunately missed. Um, wow. but I mean, it was, it was bedlam and it was just, you know, and, uh, six weeks later she came back and she said, Dr. Clark, what did you do? Because she said, everybody is quiet. Everybody says good morning to me nicely. And they are all smiling. What did you do? And I said, well, I treat people with respect. If there's ructions on the ward, I listen to everybody. I never took 
if a nurse has called me and said, Mr. So-and-so needs to be put in restraint, I would never order the restraint over the phone. I'd say, I'll be there in less than three minutes. And I would make sure that I see Mr. So-and-so and see if I could get him to calm down before we put somebody in physical restraint. Um, which I actually never had to do. I always managed to, to get them to just sort of, come on, let's move on, let's metabolize this, let's, and, um, uh, and so, as I say, people thought I was gifted. Uh, I don't know so much that I had a gift for psychiatry, but I'd been through, by the time I started working as a psychiatrist, I had been through 18 hospitalizations, one of which was for nine months. Mm -hmm. So I pretty much knew what the patients were going through. And it was, it was this ability to relate to them. I was distressed the other night because I called the local mental health hotline because I was just very frustrated and I thought I'd be on the phone for maybe five minutes or something. Um, but the young lady there kept saying, okay, okay, okay. And she said, okay, when I said my father died when I was 10. And she said, you know, everything was okay for her. And I said, you know, you're making me feel absolutely furious with you because what I'm telling you is not okay. And she said, oh, I didn't mean it that way. I just meant I hear you. And I said, well, try and learn to say what you mean. If you mean I hear you, say that. Because, okay, okay. I said, you know, if a young girl called you and said that she was looking forward to her wedding next month to a wonderful guy, and then he called her up and called it off, would you say okay to her? What about mm -hmm. somebody whose mother died three days ago? Would you say okay? You know, mm -hmm. so she thanked me actually for, um, for correcting her. But, um, you know, I, the, I used to in the morning when I got to work and it was a few minutes, I was always early. It was a few minutes before I would see my first patient. I would pray earnestly, dear Lord, send me someone to whom I can make a sizable difference. Yeah. Send me someone who is really looking for help and who I can reach and convince them that I might be able to help them. And I've had uh, what I call the speech, which is because I told you I do. I did a few minutes, a few months here, a few months there. Um, the speech was, Dr. Clark, I know we're parting company shortly. I want you to tell, I want to tell you that you've changed my life. You've changed my kid's life. And I personally will never forget you until the day I die. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had lots of little thank you notes and flowers and all kinds of, because I listen to people, which means you hear what they say and you hear what they don't say. Um, for instance, uh, my father used, um, this is not true of me. I had a wonderful father, but somebody says to you, my father used to beat me up and uh, 
you he, he narrowly misses saying that he beat him within an inch of his life one time. Uh, but you have to hear what they don't say. Uh, you know, I have a beautiful house and I live alone. And she doesn't exactly say it, but you get the feeling that she's very lonely. Mm -hmm. um, but really listen to people. And I found when I had, say, a, a very manic person whose uh, grammar may be very fractured, uh, because the thing is, you have so many thoughts going through your head at such a f speed that you can't possibly stick to one sentence about one incident. But I used to have be able to write people up and people, people, other people would say, well, I saw Mr. So-and-so and he's just not making any sense. And then they'd read my write-up and the man had said, you know, she shouldn't have left me. I really tried with her and various other things stuck between, oh, a reference to a trip to Acapulco and so on. But you get the idea that his real problem is something to do with his romantic life. Somebody else, uh, he also has his speech broken up by all kinds of references, but he keeps saying, my boss should be shot. Uh, he's mm -hmm. such a meanie. So you know his problem is with work. Right. Uh, but you have to listen and not just say, well, his syntax is terrible and his speech is not very good, so I'm not going to bother. That's a good point. Uh, thanks for everyone to contribute their questions. West Point will send copies of the book to Dr. Clark to sign. It will be shipped to you by our friends at West Point. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Clark, for being on this episode of New Amsterdam Radio. Good, insightful advice about the book, Taming the Dragon, available now at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, or wherever you get your fine books. Thanks so much for listening to New Amsterdam Radio. Learn more about the show at newamsterdam.com. That's K-N-E-W-Amsterdam.com. Until next time, this city is yours. <laughs>